Well, as uh, both Rich and Neil have said, this is not um, the passage that we were planning uh, to cover this morning. Um, this is not the sermon, uh, indeed, that I have been working on all week. Um, but I woke yesterday morning and thought, we need to scrap what we were going to do. Uh, I need to put aside the eight hours that I'd worked on the talk uh, for this morning. And uh, we can start that sermon series next week, beginning in Matthew's uh, Gospel, chapter 13. And we will next week. We will look at the stories of the kingdom, what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. And I had a great story, and it was a really great story to start my sermon with. It was all lined up. Someone told me on Thursday a real-life incident, and it was a great story. And I will have to find a way of including that great story at the start of one of my talks in the next three months. But it seemed only right, and it seemed that this week was not a time for great stories or for jokes. This time and today is a time when we need to see the kingdom of God in action, not to hear about it in a talk. Today it seems the right thing, indeed the only thing, is to focus on the migrant crisis that has hit the headlines this week. And even in calling it a migrant crisis, Already some of you will say, why are you calling it a migrant crisis? The BBC have been hammered uh, for calling it a migrant crisis as opposed to a refugee crisis. What's the difference between the two? And why is one name used sometimes and not the other? By the way, if you are desperate to hear me preach on the parable of the sower that I was due to preach on today, go to the church website, download a talk from three years ago called The Debate and the Detail from the 30th of September 2012. And if you do that, you need to get out more. Um, <laughs> the reality is, however, that for most of us this week, something changed. From Wednesday night and that horrendous image of three-year-old Aylan Curdy's body being washed up on the island of Kos, a tipping point was reached. It's quite remarkable that that one photograph has changed the way in which millions of people are now viewing this crisis. Certainly has changed the way I see this crisis. All of a sudden, politicians have changed their public stance. All of a sudden, people are responding and reacting in a different way to how some of us felt before Wednesday this week. A humanitarian crisis on the scale of which few of us have ever seen has been brought to our attention by the photograph of one boy drowning in the sea off a Greek island. And so it felt only right yesterday that I begin writing a new talk. So this morning I'm going on a trapeze without a net, so please come along with me. But the difficulty is where to start. The reality is politicians don't seem to know this situation, this crisis, has actually been going on for four years at least. So why have things changed this week? Why have things changed since Thursday? Well, if we're honest, it's difficult to know where to begin. Our politicians don't seem to know how to respond. Governments across Europe don't seem to know how to respond. Social media this week has been full of different theories. If you've been on Facebook or Twitter, it's almost seemed like death by clicktivism, uh, as different people have given different theories as to how this problem can be solved. 
Send 100,000 troops into Syria, one person says. Sort out ISIS, and this crisis will be over. Bomb Libya, and everything will be solved. Let them all in. Keep them all out. There are different voices coming from different places at different times. And as I say, even the facts are hard to discern. Are they political refugees or are they economic migrants? Or are they simply human beings like you and like me? And how many are there? It's estimated that perhaps as many as four million people are now classed as refugees from Syria. One figure has it as high as 11 million displaced people, with half of them being under the age of 18. This is a humanitarian crisis that is bigger than anything in most of our lifetimes. Is it similar to Europe in 1938? That case has been made this week. Why isn't Europe responding? Why isn't America responding in the way that it did in 1938 or indeed in 1945? Is it like Uganda in the 1970s when um, people from an Asian background were expelled from Uganda under Idi Amin and the UK welcomed thousands of refugees? Why are the numbers so big and why is the response so slow? And why are they coming to Europe? Why not nearer to the Middle East, to Saudi Arabia, for example? Many of those Middle Eastern countries, their response has been almost marginal. And how are we to respond as Christians? Is it as simple as offering all our homes or churches as sanctuaries? Is it that simple? Or is it as complex as the entire politics of the Middle East and Europe? And how do I avoid this talk sounding like a Guardian editorial? Well, yesterday I came across a very helpful blog by a church leader called Di Hankey. He's a Welsh church leader. And also a video by Krish Kandia, the principal of London School of Theology. And if I'm being honest, a lot of what follows comes from them as they went through the Bible, seeing what God might be saying to the UK church just now. And I want to give you four or five pointers throughout Scripture and then I want to give you six or seven action points, ways in which we as the church or as individuals, as families, might want to respond. The first thing I want to say is that God is a refuge for refugees. The God that we worship, the God that we follow, the God that we believe in again and again and again is portrayed as a refuge throughout Scripture. So whether it's Psalm 61, Psalm 91, Psalm 143, time and time again, God is portrayed as a refuge, a safe place, a secure place. When danger is all around, God is someone to whom we can run. So it's not surprising, therefore, that God should express his heart for the poor in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verses 17 to 18 with these words. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the great God, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And then God commands his people, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt. So the God that we believe in, 
The God that we follow is a God who is a God of refuge and a God of refuge for refugees. And as a consequence of that, God wants his people to offer refuge to refugees. In Deuteronomy 24 and verses 18 to 20, God says this, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field, when you overlook a sheaf, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. God's concern for people is such that he gives this piece of agricultural advice that when they're harvesting their fields and they miss a sheaf of corn, they aren't to go back and get it. They're to leave it. Leave it for the foreigner to come. Leave it for the fatherless. Leave it for the widow. When they're harvesting the trees, the olive trees, and they miss a branch, they're not to go back to the branch. They're to leave that branch with the fruit still on it for the foreigner, for the fatherless for the widow. As we saw a couple of years ago when we spent two months looking at justice in the Bible, the theme of justice is a theme that runs right through Scripture from old right through to the New Testament. And it is at the very heart of who God is. The God that we believe in is a God of justice. And God asks you and I as his people to respond as peoples of justice. Or as Justin Welby put it this week, the Archbishop of Canterbury, as Christians we believe we're called to break down barriers, to welcome the stranger and love them as ourselves, and to seek the peace and justice of our God in our world today. So the God that we follow and believe in is a refuge who asks his people to offer refuge to refugees. Partly because most strikingly, God knows what it's like to be a refugee. Jesus came as a refugee. There's that bit, isn't there, in the Christmas story, Matthew chapter 2 and verses 13 to 15, where we realise that God himself knows what it's like to run for his life. God himself knows what it is to leave his home, to leave his place of birth, and to run to escape in order that he might preserve his life. Shortly after his birth, Mary and Joseph have to run to Egypt to escape the infanticide, the slaughter of the innocents that Herod is about to unleash on Bethlehem. It's a sort of reverse exodus as God goes back to Egypt, having delivered his people from Egypt. So God is a refuge. He asks his people to offer refuge to refugees and he himself came as a refugee. And then most strikingly throughout the New Testament, we are actually referred to as refugees. In describing what we were like before we became Christians, the Apostle Paul describes us as aliens and strangers in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 19. Not in the physical sense, not socially, not in the way that we might look at somebody from Glasgow and say, well, we're from Edinburgh, you are an alien and a stranger. 
And they might look at us and say, well, you're from Edinburgh, you are very strange and very alien. But we were aliens and strangers. That's one of the terms used to describe us by the Apostle Paul. Because spiritually, we were aliens and strangers. Spiritually, we were separate from God. Spiritually, we were living in a distant country. But now we've been brought near. Now we've been reconciled. Now we've been brought home. Now we've been made into a new nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood belonging to God, as Peter describes it in chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. But not only were we once aliens and strangers... But actually, according to the New Testament, in another sense, we still are aliens and strangers. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter writes this, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, if there is one group of people that should be able to sympathise with the plight of people who are living in a separate country, who are not living in their natural environment, it's Christians. Because this is not our home. This is not our natural environment. Whatever we might see in our passport, that is not the primary place of our allegiance. No matter how we may have voted in last year's referendum, we do not belong primarily as our identity being Scottish, or English, or British, or American, or Canadian, or South African, or wherever you come from this morning, our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. That's where we belong. That's our home. That's the place that has our first priority. There won't be any Scottish people in heaven. I enjoyed saying that for some reason. But neither will there be Kiwis, Ross. Neither will there be English people. Neither will there be Welsh people. Neither will there be French, Nigerians, Americans, whatever. Yes, we will be gathered together from every nation and tribe and tongue under heaven. But then we will be one nation. Then we will be one people. So if there is any group that should sympathise with a group of people who are displaced, it should be Christians. Because we live as displaced people. We live as people where this is not our natural home. And then finally, we are going to be judged on our hospitality. That passage that Neil read for us from Matthew 25. It's, it's quite a controversial passage. But there's this parable, this story that Jesus tells about a king deciding between the sheep and the goats, those who will go on his left, those who will go on his right. And some people say, well, hang on, doesn't this seem to go against the gospel of grace? Doesn't this seem to go against the idea that you can't earn God's approval? 
And some people say, well, now that actually what's happening here is that Jesus is primarily telling a story about how we should act towards other Christians. Because the only other places where Jesus uses that term, brothers and sisters, which he uses in this story in Matthew 25, is when he's referring to other Christians, to, to his followers, to his disciples. That's one possible interpretation. But you see, we don't get off the hook even with that. Because there are Christians amongst the Syrian refugees. I don't know about you, but I was just gobsmacked by watching songs of praise. Not a sentence I thought I'd ever say. But I was gobsmacked a few weeks ago watching songs of praise. Where they'd gone to the refugee camp called the Jungle in Calais. And there was this chapel. Remember that, that chapel that, that was so welcomed at the BBC's decision by the Daily Mail to go and, and film there? Um, but you went, and, and Sally Magnuson went, and she saw the chapel, and she saw it being led by a, a theology student. And something struck me about that chapel, the amount of care that had been put into establishing and building up that chapel. The items that were in that chapel, they'd been brought from the people's homelands. They hadn't gone out into Calais to buy those items, they brought them with them from Eritrea, from Ethiopia, from Syria. Why? Because they were Christians. So even if you look at Matthew 25 and the parable of the sheep and the goats and say, well, really, it's speaking about how we should respond to Christians. Okay, if you want to take it that way, you can. Some people do. Many theologians do. But even then, it doesn't let you off the hook. It doesn't let me off the hook. Because there are Christians, there are brothers and sisters amongst the refugees. There are people who are Muslims, there are people of no faith, but there are certainly Christians there. So we need to do something. And the one thing that we cannot do is nothing. The one thing we cannot do is nothing. Now, it's a complicated subject, and just this week the Scottish Government... Um, with Nicola Sturgeon, held a summit uh, about the refugee crisis. And undoubtedly, we have to say that there's an appeal for Sc the Scottish Government to try and play themselves off against the Westminster Government and the different approaches that people are taking. But one of the people who was invited to that summit was one of our own church members, Alison Strang. Um, together with Jenny Cornfield, she leads the Global Focus Team uh, here at P's and G's, but her day job is rather more important than that. Her day job is as the senior research fellow at Queen Margaret University, specialising in the psychological needs of refugees and asylum seekers. So she knows a thing or two about this. She can't be here today, she's down in London, but she told me that this is what she said on Friday morning as the Scottish Government gathered the Scottish Refugee Council and about 25 different agencies as to how they could respond. And Alison said this, This crisis is the flip side of globalisation. We are now so interconnected as a world that when there is need in one place, people will now reach out to travel to another. She also said, Solidarity and sharing is good for our society, and this crisis might help us rediscover our sense of community. But I think Alison had put a finger on one really important thing. 
what we're seeing is the flip side of globalization. Where if there's a problem in one part of the world, then very quickly people understand that there's another part of the world that can either help them or where they would rather be. You see, since the advent of these things, the world is a much smaller place. It stunned me on the two visits that I've made to Kenya, that Kenya is one of the nations that has completely bypassed what we used to call land lines. You know how old somebody is if somebody uses the term land line. Uh, anybody under the age of 20 doesn't really understand the term landline or indeed the term mobile. We talk about mobile telephones. Well, if you're under the age of 15 to 20, there's just phones. And they've always been like this. Kenya now has just gone straight to the digital age. You can be in the middle of Kenya talking to a Maasai warrior in full regalia. His phone will go and he'll take it out of his robes and answer it. They're connected digitally in a way that they just bypass the whole sort of landline era. So that means that people can Af in Africa now can understand f with far greater information what life is like in other parts of the world. And I was speculating, in fact it was David Strang who, who said, what would we do if the whole of Africa just suddenly decided to walk to Europe? It's quite a thought, isn't it? What would we do? If the whole of Africa, well, you might come from different parts of Africa. I was preaching at the nine o'clock and there were people from South Africa and they said, well, we wouldn't want to come and live here. The climate's far nicer down there and we beat you at cricket and rugby at football, so we don't want to come here. Well, think about those parts of Africa that Rachel Mash described a couple of weeks ago. Those parts of Africa where huge swathes of sub-Saharan Africa are now suffering from the consequences of climate injustice. Where there are now no natural, not enough natural resources to keep them going, enough water. What happened if people just above a line, Kenya, going across to Western Africa, if they just decided to start walking to Europe? What could we do? You saw it on Thursday and Friday. The refugees in Budapest realized that the trains that they were waiting to take them to Germany either weren't going to come or weren't going to leave. So what did they do? They just decided to walk to Austria from Hungary. It's like turning to somebody over coffee this morning and saying, oh, what are you doing this afternoon? And then saying, I've decided to walk to Spain starting today. But that's what they did. They just started walking to Austria. The situation was so dangerous, they were walking along the hard shoulder of the motorway that eventually the Hungarian authorities responded and sent buses to pick them up and take them to the border with Austria. And again, there were buses waiting for them in Austria that took them uh, all the way to the trains to take them to Germany. So what can we do? 
Well, very quickly, here are five or six things that we can do in response. Most of these things that I'm going to put, uh, I'm going to talk to you through very quickly now, um, they're on the church website. Elizabeth Lawson from our Global Focus team uh, put them up last night. Uh, David Simpson's going to put a link on the front page of our church website to this page, which, which at the moment is on the Global Focus part of the website. And there you'll find a lot of the details that I'm going to run through very quickly. So if you don't take it all in, don't worry. Go on the website, the church website this afternoon, and those, these six or seven action points will be there, and you can go to it from the front page. First thing that I think we can do, and most importantly, it was, is we can pray. We can pray for the politicians and the governments involved. Humanly speaking... There is no solution to this. Humanly speaking, it's difficult to know, I don't know about you, but it's difficult to know how anybody can predict how this is going to finish. 11 million people displaced across Europe. How is this going to unravel? How is it going to finish? How is it going to conclude? This is going to take years, not months, to solve. So we need to pray. And pray for the government. Pray for the UK government. Pray for the Scottish government. Pray for the EU government. Because they're the ones charged with finding a solution. So pray. We need wisdom. Pray too for those trying to escape oppression, poverty, persecution, violence and war. 24-7 Prayer are organising a week of prayer starting tomorrow. And again, visit their website for details as to how you can pray. So pray. Second thing we can do is give financially. As a church, we've decided to give £10,000 to save the children. Um, we have some money left over from the uh, Local Issues Fund and 10% Fund, and we were going to use that money to seed fund this new MICA fund uh, that we're going to uh, be telling you about over the next few months. Um, but on Thursday morning, Miranda, our operations director, suggested uh, that we should give £10,000 of it uh, towards the humanitarian crisis. Um, so I rang World Vision and said, who should we give it to? They had a discussion amongst themselves down in their emergency relief team, and they said, well, we've got teams uh, who are at work, but we suggest that you give it either to the Red Cross or to save the children, because they're the people who are, as it were, on the cold face. They're the people who are responding. They're at the sharp end. And so we decided, Investory agreed, um, that we're going to give £10,000 tomorrow uh, to save the children. Now, You've already given that. I say, no, it's the church's money, it's your money. You've already given that money. If you want to give on top of that, then give to Save the Children, give to the Red Cross, give to World Vision, give to Tear Fund and Open Doors. Both Tear Fund and Open Doors have also got appeals out. They've got projects working with refugees. So give financially. It might be that you want to give practical items, items of clothing. Then Calade, uh, which has been set up over the past few months, um, is collecting at Studio 24 at 26 Carlton Road, Edinburgh. And there's a list on their website of things they want, mainly men's clothes, and things they don't want, women's clothes. So it's no good going home saying, well, I've come to the end of that, I'll give it to the refugees. 
They want men's clothes, they want children's clothes, they want flip-flops, they want sun cream. There's a list. What they don't want is stuff they don't need. That's going to help nobody. Please, 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 don't just take junk and give it, because that does not help me. It clutters up the transports, it clutters up people's time. Please look on the website first and give what they need. The third thing is campaign. Write or email your MP or MSP. I did on Thursday, I got an immediate reply. An immediate reply from Deirdre Brock, our MP. Go on the e-petition website of the UK government and ensure that there is a Westminster debate. Um, it only required 100,000 um, signatures. Yesterday morning it had reached 405,000. So there will be a debate, but if you sign up, that will show how you feel, that you really want our politicians to talk about this. Fourthly, show your support. There's a vigil outside Holyrood on Saturday uh, at 2.30. It's called Edinburgh Sea Syria. And the idea is going to be a peaceful demonstration of support. And there'll be other gatherings around the UK. Or connect with Edinburgh Churches for Sanctuary and see what they're doing. Fifthly and finally, do something. And this is where what I'm going to propose will be far more challenging and demanding than, than many of us are comfortable with. But maybe God is calling us to do this. Both Citizens UK and Home for Good have set up registers on their websites for people willing to offer accommodation to refugees. Home for Good, whose director Krish Kandia preached here last year, um, their register is aimed specifically at offering accommodation for unaccompanied minors. So there are children, not coal workers, children who've lost their parents. And they need accommodation, they need care when they reach the UK. And so Home for Good in particular are looking for people to volunteer to offer accommodation for unaccompanied minors. I was talking to two of our church members at the nine o'clock congregation who've already signed up for this. And they say, we know it's tough, it's gonna to be challenging, we don't know all the details yet, but we have room in our house and we're willing to care for a child who have lost their parents. Iceland seems to have set an amazing an example. Two or three years ago, or maybe ten years ago, uh, we wanted to be like Iceland in Scotland. Uh, Iceland was held up as an example of a small independent nation that we could be like. And then the 2008 economic crisis happened, and Iceland went down the tube, and people said, we don't want to be like Iceland. We don't want to be like Iceland. Iceland have led the way in offering accommodation. Their prime minister gave a press conference a couple of weeks ago where he said Iceland was willing to accept 500 people as refugees. 48 hours later on Facebook, 11,000 Icelanders had offered accommodation, saying we have room in our home, in our house, where refugees could come and stay with us. So the Prime Minister of Iceland is now revising his figure of 500 refugees because 11,000 citizens of Iceland have said we're willing to have them live with us. Now this is complicated. This is not a short-term solution, nor can it be a quick fix, nor a knee-jerk reaction. We should not underestimate the complexity of the psychological needs of some people who will have travelled thousands of miles in search of a home, leaving their homes and families hundreds of miles away, and many of whom will have fled persecution and war. 
You can't simply say, come and live with me for a month. It's not that easy. There will need to be proper systems set up. There'll need to be a proper process set up. There'll need to be proper vetting, both of hosts and refugees. There'll need to be safeguarding done, especially with regard to children. It will need a coordinated and sustained response. It cannot be an emotional or romantic surge of sympathy. But imagine if the church in the UK were to take the lead on this. Imagine if the church in Edinburgh were to take the lead in this. You see, the one thing we cannot do is to do nothing. We go back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. And the words that Jesus said in that story, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are in prison, those who needed clothes, you will show that you belong to my kingdom in how you respond to them. The God of justice, the God of compassion, the God of grace and love, of hospitality and refuge, calls his people to act, to show the world a better way. Way. Let's pray together.